We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today are two very special guests. Ray Nowoshelski is an Emmy-nominated nonfiction filmmaker, producer, and writer. Nowoshelski worked on many successful projects, one in which he personally directed, 9-11 Press for Truth, where the film surrounds the lives and activism of widows of husbands who were killed in the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. John Duffy is a writer and activist. He wrote and produced a critically acclaimed documentary, Press for Truth, his 2011, Who is Rich Blee? was among the first podcasts to explore the true crime investigator genre. Three years before Serial, exposing an alleged human rights abuser inside the NSA and resulting in a well-publicized threat of prosecution from that agency. He collaborated with Ray on Ray Coppo on eight films. With John Duffy, he created the I Heart BLM True Cry podcast after the uprising, nominated for a 2022 NAACP Image Award. The Intercept co-founder, Glenn Greenwald, later dubbed the work Fantastic and Brave. Both Nowoshelski and Duffy would co-author an Amazon best-selling book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, The CIA, NSA, and the Crimes of the War on Terror, which covered the U.S. intelligence failures and publicly named certain CIA officers who embarked on a secret operation of hiding information from the FBI regarding two Al-Qaeda operatives who would later hijack American Airlines Flight 77 that crashed in the Pentagon World on September 11, 2001. Ray, John, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, Adam. Thank you for your podcast. Yeah, thanks for, having us. thanks for the invite. I, I want to start very simply, you know, just to um, get where you were at. Where were you on September 11th and what were you doing? You go I think everybody, go ahead, Duff. <laughs> everybody thinks their 9-11 story is like interesting because it's so personal to them. Uh, I realize it's not interesting at all. It's... um. I, I I woke up, I showered. When I got out of the shower, the phone rang. It was my dad. He said, are you watching TV? Your life has just changed. Uh, you know, we're under attack. So he he basically had apparently uh, someone from the White House had whispered the exact same thing in his ear as, as, as they had in W's. But uh, and I turned on the TV and I, I was obviously very emotional about it. Watch both towers fall and um, it was and uh, and just and I had this uh, idea of history with um you know, the, the greatest generation, I had this romantic idea that, uh, that our generation's big fight had come. And then of course we start, um, I don't know, we, we, we get hip to Paul Thompson's website and it kind of takes us, uh, into a different version of, uh, our, his, our generation's fight. But yeah, that was my day. Pretty simple. Saw it on TV. 
Yeah, we were in college. Uh, we were about to start our junior year of college. We both went to college together at Columbia and Chicago. And uh, um, our semesters started late. They didn't start. So we both hadn't started the semester yet. So I was I was like at home in bed. Sister called. She, you know, said, you know, wake up, turn on the TV, watched it. Obviously, you know, felt incredibly emotional. Um I had to go to work that day. I worked as a graphic designer at the time. And then my boss was probably one of the worst human beings I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> and, uh, and just all day, he was just like, kill, kill effing Arabs. Stuff. And I was like, oh my God, like, I can't wait to go back to college. <laughs> um, so yeah. And then it, like, I think it was, we were ready for it to be, you know, people our age were ready for it to be in a sense, maybe like our, our, our Vietnam moment or our Watergate moment. It was clear that this was going to be a big deal. Um, and I, you know, there were people our age talking about, oh, you know, signing up for the military and things like that. And then, uh, yeah, I think it like it didn't take long, you know, for us to start kind of hearing the whispers of like, like, wait a minute, that's not what it seems or wait a minute, that's not what it seems. And then, like, I think Ray and I were both like, I, I don't think we'd be ashamed to admit we were both very big fans of uh Oliver Stone's film JFK again we were film students and so we we really liked that movie and then as the years went by I think we both were like you know there's you, you know there, there's kind of a lot going on here and there might be something bigger behind 9-11 than what we you know had, had, had been told so I think that might have maybe that's a good intro I don't know no it's uh did um, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams at that point um, that you would embark on what you what you embarked on? I don't think so. I mean, we were we again, we were film students. I took some documentary classes, but mostly I was focused on like narrative film and stuff. I think it really started congealing for us because, like he said, we read Paul Thompson's website, and um, I think it was probably it probably wasn't until two thousand four. And like Ray and I had like talked about these things and things we had read or, you know, things we'd heard. And then it was 2004. He and I actually had taken a road trip. And this is this is the era. I I, I don't remember, Ray, if it was you or if it was me. One of us printed out a bunch of stuff, probably from like Paul Thompson's website or something like that. And on the road trip, like one of us in the passengers <laughs> was like, hey, and then there was this. And do you know about this? And it was just like, was part of a topic of conversation while we were like in the car and i think and both of us were like we, were, we had recently graduated college and we're like you know there's probably a movie here there's probably a film project here and that that was sort of the genesis for the what would become press for truth was us just talking about this in in the car you know but no i would never have thought the morning of that we would have gone down that road yeah, um, actually, every I think every project, because the first thing was like, we're just going to do this one documentary and we're going to put everything that we've got in our brains out into the world so people can kind of see things maybe a little closer to the way we're seeing them because the propaganda was heavy out there. And uh, and but every project, it was like, but this is it for me. Like, I don't want to spend my life do like being about 9-11. So we're going to do this one project and then move on. And it never quite hit or there was always something that would emerge that seemed worthy of the follow up at least another article or finally the podcast and then the podcast was going to be it. And then, all right, let's write this book. You know um, I think the book finally satiated it. It was like, okay, I think we actually got everything that we have to say out there, but I don't know. Well, the, well, I mean, 
the big the big day for you is October 14, 2009, and that's the famous interview with the National Coordinator for Counterterrorism under Clinton and Bush administration, Richard Clark. Uh, take us through how you managed the interview and what transpired there. Well, we were self-taught journalists for one thing, because we went to film school. We didn't go to J school. So in the beginning, we thought, um, you know, you'd read like an article and there'd be some glaring inconsistency or something they should have asked that they didn't. And it's like, ah, oh, why didn't they ask them that? And uh, and rather than us, you know, piss and moan about how bad certain journalists were, it was like, well, if we called them up, is it possible they would talk to us? And Little by little, we found out that in many cases, uh, you know, even government insiders or names you would know, like if they feel they haven't been asked about things that they really had wanted to talk about, they actually would be more than happy to talk to some, some nobodies and just sort of get it out there because it's just a vehicle to get it to the public. And I, I think that's what happened with Richard Clark. Uh, we had planned a little trip to New York and D.C. on a shoestring to just try to like, you know, hit all the people that we thought we would want to talk to. And we thought, why not take a crack? And sent an email to his like longtime assistant, I think his name Beverly Roundtree, and got back, uh, yeah, you know, we'll talk about this. Uh, we had noticed that Richard Clark had, you know, he had his big, his big book at the time of the commission. And then he had this follow up in like 2008 called Your Government Failed You, where he gave this whole chapter to these two terrorists and how inexplicable, how almost impossible it was in his mind that like, uh, he, he called the title of the chapter straining credulity. Like he's not a conspiracy theorist, he says, but this is just like beyond what you can believe by coincidence. If you look at all those facts here. So there's something else happening. So anyway, uh, we, we called him up and he, he was said, sure, I'll meet you on this date at this time. And we pulled up with our little team in the van. And I remember outside kind of pregaming like, this is it, guys. I know he's not going to say anything. We're, we're going to have to stair step him up to everything we got. We want him to say. And he comes in dressed in this blue suit. He looked a little elfish to me is what I remember, like shorter than I expected. These like his glasses look kind of wise, had a had a funny grin on his face. And uh, I think he got tired of our like stair step questions after like two and was like, look, can I just tell you what happened here? <laughs> and he just like launches into it. Yeah, we, we really thought we'd have to like work him for like any info. And like he was just like. He's like, no, 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 no. This is what happened. Like, just, just let me go. And we were like, oh, okay, let's rock, you know. And uh, it was actually pretty. I think, you know, we were very lucky. Obviously, Paul Thompson had done a ton of work uh, by that time. Kevin Fenton had done a bunch of work. We went in armed. We'd already read, um, you know, disconnecting the dots that Fenton had done. So, like, it's this thing of knowing what to ask. And we can complain that a journalist didn't ask this thing, but you can't ask the question you don't know to ask, right? And then when there's lots of, as facts dribble out, then it like, and other people's analysis kind of comes together, you can be the next sort of rung on that ladder. So I think when we went in, I doubt we were the people that Clark expected when we walked in the room. I think we were probably like a lot younger than he expected, but uh but we immediately started speaking like we knew what we were talking about, like we, and we knew what we knew a lot of names. We knew a lot of dates like we knew names that other people didn't know. And, and like and so I think all of a sudden he's like, oh, these people have done their research. And he I immediately was like, all right, let's let's talk turkey, you know. Yeah, the, yeah the I guess in a couple of cases we knew like still considered classified names that probably got his attention a little bit. Yeah. It's like, huh. 
And so my follow up question to you, because it, it, one thing that you mentioned in the book, too, which really uh, put a light bulb on your head was uh, that he implied that George Tenet withheld information from the FBI. And was this the first time you were hearing it? Was that the first time we were hearing that George Tenet had withheld yeah. information? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it was just I think what it was was more this was the first time someone at that level like made the implication right. that it was more based on the evidence that it was more than likely that this was intentional and high level, right? So, because he said that there must've been a high level decision made at the CIA to intentionally pull him out of the information chain. He tried to really hammer home. He's like, look, you have to understand a lot of things are automatic. They come to me automatically. These like the way the computer system is set up when various updates are generated and CIA stuff, it automatically comes to me. He's like the, the cable, like cables that were being read at Alex station about, you know, Khalid Al-Midar and now awful Hazmi. He's like, I should have gotten that in any other default situation. So he was really trying to stress like, for me to not get that someone made a choice and he was like he's like it must have been a high level decision and we said well how high level and he said i i think it would have had to have been a director so like that was a pretty you know and again he was very he's a smart man you know richard clark is you don't get where he was by being a dummy or by being or by speaking uh like unjudiciously or whatever mm -hmm. so he was very cautious to countenance everything like look i can't prove this so I'm not saying this is 100% certain, but from everything I can see and everything I know from my experience, this would be the most obvious explanation. You know, like this is the only explanation to me that makes sense. So, and Adam, I mean, we, uh, you know, we apologize. It, it had been a while since we've been on uh, this investigation, so we warned you ahead of time there'd be like some facts that we'd have to sort of pull back up in the moment. Sure. Just unpacking that, like, I'm trying to remember what we knew going in. And so, I mean, we'd had conversations with people like Jack Clune and the former FBI counterterror agent, like in his living room. And those things had largely focused on people at that mid-level and who they were dealing with. So they could talk about people inside the CIA at this thing called Alex Station and who those players were and what their personalities. And he would say things to us. I, I love that interview because he was so emotional and he just says, I don't know how they sleep at night. I really don't. And, and he lays into a few specific names, but it was all at that mid level. So up to that point, we suspected that it could have been green light at a higher level, but we never worked in the white house and we never worked at the CIA. So you see a group of people at the station called Alec, who all seem to be very clearly knowledgeable about these hijackers having come over and all seem to be deliberately withholding it from the FBI did it go any higher? We had no way to kind of hash out that question. And someone with a knowledge of the CIA and White House and how these things are communicated, like Clark, saying definitively, I know how this works. And there's no way that proceeded without the knowledge of the director and specifically Tenet, who I know well and I know was in the weeds on this. That, I think, was the first time I was like, well, this is something I can repeat and feel good about. Yeah. Sure. Um and it's, you know, what, what's fascinating is that you're the only people to touch with Richard Clark. Nobody's done it before. Um, and here you are. You have this magnificent interview with him. Um, and you would ba basically publish the interview. Um, did you think it would garner the attention it deserved? Or did you think that 
uh, it, it will basically be forgotten in, in time or whatnot. What was your thoughts about publishing the episode? So the first thing to know is when we filmed that interview, it was for a follow-up film. We, we, we were trying to make a follow-up to Press for Truth, and it was going to focus on Alex Station and all this stuff there. And uh, and so that was the, the point of interviewing Clark, and that was why we filmed it, right? And that was 2009. We didn't release it until 2011. Right. And that was only because our film financing just never came together. So we were right. never able to make this movie we wanted to make. And it was Ray's idea. He's like, we've got all this footage, which obviously has accompanying audio. And he's like, we can finish by making phone calls to people and record those. And he's like, we can put this all into what's called a podcast. And at the time I was like, what is that? And like, what, huh? Like I had no clue. It was Ray's idea. We sat in my garage and recorded our narration. And I was like, just kind of trusting Ray that this was a thing, you know? But mm -hmm. so when this interview with Clark comes out, we, we, but we did cut together the footage of the Clark interview with some, you know, with some still photography and things like that to make a short, just like a, like a 10 minute, 11 minute thing that's still on YouTube. And I think the first place we played that was on like Denver PBS, if I'm not mistaken, right, Ray? Like we went, cause there, there was yeah. the anniversary of 9-11 that local activists got uh, press for truth shown on uh, Denver PBS. And we're like, we're going to do something really special. We're like, while our movie's playing, we're going to actually give you the the world exclusive of this interview we did with Richard Clark and that showed, and then we'd submitted it to some other like press outlets and stuff. But I think I honestly thought it would be bigger <laughs> than it was. It was not, you know, like, I think a lot of media people thought like, oh, Richard Clark finally lost his bean. <laughs> you know, like they didn't think like, wow, we should take this seriously. And like, which I'm Ray probably remembers the specific outlets and their specific comments on what they, not many people touched on it at the time. And the few that did kind of pushed us aside, weren't really worried, interested in talking about us or any of the other sort of general context. Um, but it was, it is, it was interesting because it, it makes you, it makes you wonder. It's like, how big of an official do you need? Like, you know, how big of a person from the inside do you need saying these things before people in the media editors, you know, editors and stuff like that will finally say, okay, this is worth taking seriously instead of going up. Oh, another one is a crackpot, you know, like it's, it's a, I know there's a lot of like conspiracy type people who think, Oh, it's all a big conspiracy. I, I think it's mostly a ton of fear, fear at media companies, fear with editors of not wanting to step outside the bounds. Everyone wants to, like play by the rules and not upset anyone in the, in, in the government and the higher ups. And, and, you know, they don't want to lose their access. So until there's a, a brave outlet that just says, no, we're running with it, we're going with it. Then they all jump on board. But yes, I would have thought that would have been much bigger than it was. Uh, and I remember that we took certain steps to try to make sure it would be as big as it could. So instead of just dropping it on YouTube and hoping people found it or a certain community, like, blasted about it um in advance we got it to jason leopold who was at truth out at the time but he's since been uh he's been a big guy at vice and uh oh what's buzzfeed and uh and then philip shannon had written a book we really respected uh, probably still the best book on the inner workings of the commission called the commission and he was over at uh the daily beast 
So we've been working with both of them, and they were each going to premiere this on the same date. Uh, that was agreed to. And then the night before, I remember Phil Shannon says, ah, Daily Beast isn't going ahead with it. There's no uh, – Richard Clark won't get back to us, which I think is hilarious. We thought – I think it probably tickled us that Richard Clark would get back to us but wouldn't get back to the Daily Beast to verify that he still stood by it. And I was super annoyed because I was like, well, you've seen the footage. You know he said this. You watch the words coming out of his mouth. Mm. You're not going to run it because you don't know if he still stands by it. How about just report that he ever said it, you know? And uh, and so I, I forward an email in which, like, Richard, because we had gone back and we said out of some kind of deference, it's been two years, like, we want to move ahead with this. Is there anything you want to correct? And he did, he, to his credit, he was like, go, go ahead, go do it. And he probably knew he'd get painted in a certain light, but he gave us the go ahead. Anyway, Shannon ends up, the funny thing was there that the Daily Beast ended up uh, not only moving ahead the next morning as planned, but moved up their like release time by two hours just to scoop Jason Leopold. And Leopold, who did a much better article and included much more credit to us, was so pissed off at Shannon for doing that. But anyway. Yeah. Now, you know, during that interview, he talks about the 50 or so agents have read the cable and the reason Clark gives regarding the 50 or so agents, uh, 50 or so officers at CIA knew about the cable that showed Khalid Al-Midar and Wafa Hasbi, uh, knowing Al-Qaeda operatives possessing U.S. visas were coming to the United States, was that the CIA was trying to flip them as informants. Um, however, according to Richard Blee, uh, the uh, the the deputy at Alex station at 19 in 1999 before a principal's meeting, he would tell them that they lost contact with Khalid Al-Midar and Wafa Hasbi as they headed to Bangkok. Now I'd like to get your thoughts uh, regarding that. Do you believe they ever lost track of them inside the United States? Oh, Tom, we, Thomas Drake talks about it. It's, it's in our book. I mean, Tom Drake was like, no, the NSA knew where those guys were the whole time. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's poppycock. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Like, no, they, it's kind of funny to me like that they would say that because there's the i mean i guess you have to make up some sort of you have to make something up you know if you're gonna like tell this big lie um but you'd almost be like okay well everyone who lost track of them is fired now <laughs> like how could you be like in like the administration um and hear that and not tell your your cia director and tell your director of the bin laden unit <laughs> <laughs> be like oh your people can't keep track of, a, of these couple of guys you were able to track them the whole way there but you lost them leaving like well those guys are fired now get better guys you know like it's just it's just such a preposterous excuse but yeah tom drake was like yeah no that was we knew the whole time where they were going. and uh, to be clear tom drake did not work at the nsa at right. that time right. he's saying this from what he saw after the fact but it is funny like there seems if if the if the government gets caught in something that seems really bad, there's only really two explanations Americans will believe. It's a terrible conspiracy or it's complete incompetence because we have no faith in our government. So we can kind of go either way. So if they're caught, they tend to just be like, oh, yeah, no, that was we were super, super incompetent. Sorry about that. No conspiracy. It was incompetence. And then. Duffy and I, and I think how we differentiate our, our, ourselves a little from other folks who seem to just want to put a story together and figure out what happened with a mystery, we always had like the goal of accountability. And I guess Pollyanni-ish, we thought it was possible 
that if you could if you could put somebody in that hot seat where you proved something bad had happened and 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 their choices were incompetence or they participated in a conspiracy either way you should be able to get them fired uh and that turned out to not be the case to our great frustration no one was ever fired for anything that was ever proven that they failed on re- related to 9-11 so we're prosecuted uh, I, for lying before the congress <laughs> i share your naive naivety because i too believe in accountability and maybe that's the reason why i'm driven to you know do the podcast itself knowing full well no one's going to be ever held accountable but you got to put the effort there anyway um well, how about this for a hypothetical? Uh, I want to get your thoughts on it. So the CIA goes and tells everybody at the principal's meeting that they lose contact with Khalid Al-Midar and Wapadvi because they knew they were coming to the United States. And because the CIA legally cannot conduct operations inside the United States, they would rather have the NSA or the Saudis um, follow them and uh, give them providing financial and logistical support and the information would come back to them regarding what what's going on with them. Would that seem feasible? Well, or is that still, or is that entirely a reach? You want that one, Ray? I think I I I don't think our government agencies, and again, this could be Pollyanna-ish. I think they will break the, the law. If they know that they have like a tight circle, but I think they prefer to find a workaround and try to follow the law. It just makes it safer uh, on the whole. It's like it's a probability numbers game. So I think it seems most likely based on the relationship that George Tenet, head of CIA and a number of his top deputies had with uh, the Saudi intelligence services and given uh, sort, of, sort of the outline of evidence that it seemed like they, the Saudi intelligence services had already been very interested in these two guys and may have been tracking them themselves, that it would make more sense to not violate U.S. law and not monitor within the U.S. if you're CIA, but to get your friends to do it and believe and hope that they are actually feeding you good information. It's a workaround to the law. It's still not great but it's not technically illegal. Well, although it is probably inviting another intelligence service into your country to monitor folks probably is illegal actually, but they, I mean, and also, I mean, I, I think part of that is probably too the idea that if the CIA wants them, you can't walk up to them with John Kiriakou. <laughs> you can't, you can't have, you know, you need the, the approach is best made by someone who is of their culture who speaks their language who um you know it like who can start that start that process uh on on a much more uh camouflaged footing right like i i think if you are going to if that is what happened if the attempt was to get them reporting even if not necessarily consciously right because like you might think when they say oh when, when clark says like maybe they're trying to flip them or whatever it, I think people immediately think that they're going to go up and say, you're on team A, I want you to immediately switch to team B. It probably doesn't work like that. It probably works more like, let's go, let's start developing some relationships. Mm. Let's talk to them. Let's see kind of what they're up to. Let's see who they're hanging out with. And then if it comes to a point where you think they're like 100% flippable, maybe do that. But 
I don't think, I think it was probably more like we will infiltrate. It's easier to infiltrate here on our soil than it is to infiltrate on their soil. And we're going to use people they think are on their side because they look like them, share their culture, share their religion, share their language. Right. So I think that's probably more the thinking. Um, and then like Ray said, it's also, and now it's like, oh, we didn't do that. So it's also additional cover in a way, right? Because I know there's a certain section of your audience who's going to believe that they were flipped, they were monitored, they were they were kept close at hand because there was an effort by certain elements in our government to ensure that their plot was protected. And then there's the other theory that essentially they be they actually believe they're getting good information and they're on top of it. So therefore, they're telling the highest you know, the people at the highest levels, yeah, Al Qaeda's here, they're planning something, but don't worry, we're going to know if something happens, we'll be able to wrap this up. You know, we're trying to figure out all the plotters and the whole thing. So they could claim later, oh man, the Saudis, they double crossed us, those mother, you know, yeah. and uh, it's, a, it's a convenient situation, you know. So after the interview, uh, we fast forward to two years, you publish what I believe, in my opinion, was the single most important 9-11 podcast, uh, Who is Rich Blee, on September 11, 2011. And you publicly name uh, Rich Blee. It would also name Alfredo Ampakowski as Francis, uh, whose full name would later publicly be released on their website. And later the public would find out the full name of Michael and Casey as well. And I'd like for the both of you to explain who is Rich Blee, Alfredo Ampakowski, and Michael and Casey in detail for us. Uh, Richard Blee was the head of Alex Station uh, after Mike Scheuer uh, was pushed out of that. He, his father was like a legacy CIA agent, uh, um, CIA officer. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so the reason we called it Who is Rich Blee it was like Ray said, with the idea of going after accountability, it was like, okay, bin Laden successfully attacks the United States with his with his crew. There's a group at CIA called like Alex Station, which is the bin Laden unit. Their one job is to like monitor and stop bin Laden. So if anyone is to get fired for 9-11, maybe the guy who is in charge of the bin Laden unit should be the guy who takes responsibility, falls on his sword, you know, resigns, says, look, I was in charge of this. We didn't do, we didn't do the job of stopping them. Mind it should be my head that rolls, you know, and and so that's why naming Rich Blee was obviously so important in that regard. Um, uh, Alfredo Bukowski is uh, a CIA officer who worked uh, at the Bin Laden unit. She was handpicked by Mike Scheuer, who started Alex Station, uh, and she she's sort of infamous now uh, for having been involved in in torture and but also in you know she was it's claimed she was instrumental in uh, finally killing bin laden uh down the line but her name had never been known she'd been referred to as uh, a redhead at alex station things like that she's sort of, she's relevant to the story for a variety of reasons one of the big ones is because in during the congressional inquiry after 9-11 when it was so we have all these cables that came in regarding al qaeda meeting up to sort of plan terrorist attacks in malaysia uh, around the time of the millennium around the time of the turning to the year 2000 and these cables were coming back into uh, alex station and, and the counterterrorism center 
And when later asked, like, hey, why wasn't when Doug Miller, this FBI agent who was stationed there at the CIA, when he was trying to warn the FBI about what he'd read in these cables, and I hope this is coming across kind of not not super in a super convoluted way. But when so when these cables were coming in saying, hey, there's Al Qaeda guys, they're meeting up in Malaysia, they're planning bad stuff, and they have visas to ent enter the United States. An FBI uh, agent detailed to the CIA to Alex Station saw these and was like, I should probably tell my buddies back at the FBI, they're going to want to know this. And he was told not to, he was told to hold off. And uh, it later, um, when asked, like, why this intelligence wasn't shared, uh, Alfred Bukowski told, you know, you know, told the the congressional inquiry that she had personally delivered that information to FBI. And when they checked, they like, well, you never signed in on any logbooks. You didn't go like, so you said you walked, she literally said she walked the information over. And when they're like, well, no, you never showed up. You're not here. You never went to that building. She goes, well, maybe I faxed it. I, I forgot. And then the issue was just kind of allowed to drop. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so She's she's relevant for a lot of reasons. That's one of the big ones, because in this whole convoluted story of information sharing, like when they were when when investigators were trying to drill down, like exactly specifically who was involved in this, quote unquote, failure to pass information. She is one of the people who lied, said she did, but didn't. And her name was you know protected for a long time. Uh, until it came out on our website. And Ray, I don't know if you want and to- And then do that, that uh, if I can interject there, coming off of that, because uh, Michael Ann Casey comes into the mix and becomes important because she's the one who is a lower level person working directly for, for Tom Wilshire, the deputy director, and for Alfreda Bukowski. And she's the one who then takes it a step further and sends a message sort of CIA counterterror wide saying that this information has been shared misinforming uh cia people who might think to share this with their fbi counterparts that don't worry about it it's been shared when it in fact had not which did further harm i think and then she's also kind of part of the the weird loop of how this the alex station staff tried to cover their their asses after the fact well or, or sort of as it was all kind of unraveling in the quote-unquote summer of threat right before 9 11 like at this time when it would be like really, really important, to like make sure people over at the FBI knew that these guys were in the country. Uh, th there's this weird loop that sort of starts where she is tasked by Tom Wilshire, the deputy director of Alex Station, to go through in her spare time, go through the old cable traffic, see if she can tease something out with these Al Qaeda guys. And then it's by some miracle of the cosmos, like the day after John O'Neill retires at FBI counter-terror, she stumbles upon these CIA cables that mention the visas and stuff. And what she does is she hands them to who? Tom Wilshire, who then goes, oh my gosh, these guys are in country. And that's that's when the official word gets passed over. It's like August 28th. I'm, my dates might be off. I think it was August 28th of uh, 2001 finally word gets passed over to fbi oh my god these guys are in country we got to go look for them um but it's this weird circle where like tom wilshire after seeing that exact case then supposedly tells michael and casey hey why don't you look through these old cables see if you can shake something loose see if we there's something we missed here and then 
when she finally sees the exact cable that he saw that t- made him tell her to do that, she then tells him she found it. And he goes, oh my gosh, we should do something about this. And it, it's like this weird setup where they're like trying to m- create a false paper trail to make it look like they just stum- re-stumbled on this information that people had overlooked when it happened. And she was part of that sort of sort of fake paper trail. Um, it seems to be that uh, the names themselves, when you tried to publish them, uh, you were wrangling with CIA uh, officials about public relations because you came under intense pressure regarding what your plan to do about publishing uh, these names. Uh, tell us just how much pressure that you went under, because I can only imagine what the CIA was trying to do to you to try and um, stop you from publishing this this podcast. Yeah, they have um, a guy who I assume was, is pretty well trained to get into that position. He ended up being, I think, the uh, head of public affairs for CIA. So I assume they find somebody who knows how to talk with people, knows psychology. And I felt that. Uh, in my phone calls with Preston Golson that like I was being worked somehow and there were a number of approaches we had gone to them because we were requesting an interview with the these parties including Alfreda Bukowski out of us I guess an old-fashioned sense of you're being accused of a lot of things you should have the right to speak on your behalf before we put this forward uh, they asked that we share a transcript so they could react to specific things so that they essentially got our a preview of what we were going to publish so they could kind of come up with their counter talking points. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, we began to be threatened that it we might perhaps by publishing those names be violating uh, the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. We talked to an, an attorney at the ACLU, Ben Wisner, who told us, that law is not meant for people who haven't signed a security clearance, who haven't signed on to government secrecy as part of employment, but they've been trying to test it in the Obama years. Clearly, they're trying to expand it. And when they do do so, they're, uh, I've used this line a million times, but I love his line. It's like they're not going to go after uh, Bob Woodward. They're going to go after a couple people at your level <laughs> to make an example. So we were feeling a lot of heat around it, even though we knew this is a free country with the First Amendment, and we have every right to go forward with information, you know, uh, that would be public, you know, of public interest uh, about people who are collecting taxpayer money. But uh, we sweated it out. And as you know, or as people may have heard that, you know, we we actually initially decided the better move here was to, to go ahead and censor the names with like an electronic voice so people would know every time the names were censored. And we thought we could use this to create a, a larger campaign, bring more people to this subject by, by by saying, why will the CIA not let us know the names of two people uh, that, that made this monumental a failure that's still on the inside? And then what happened is that uh, our, our webmaster, a few days after the podcast with the censored version comes out, ends up accidentally posting our email to CIA that named Bukowski and a woman named Sibel Edmonds. I don't know if she's ever been on your show, but a former FBI analyst who had been doing work into, you know, um, transparency in the government uh, thanked us and published it on her site. And then Cryptome, the, the, the WikiLeaks alike by John Young put it out and 
the name was there and and that was done <laughs> so in um let's hop over to your book in chapter two of the book you spoke on what i consider one of the most important topics that i tend to focus on and that is the nsa wiretap of bin laden satellite phone in 96 that led to a house in yemen owned by Ahmed al Hada, which was later found out to be an al-qaeda switchboard of communications so i'd like to get your thoughts can you talk a bit about what what this was about yeah this is one of the most important sort of things to understand um because what we're always told is that there's no way there could have been any you know predictions about 9-11 or anything like that there's no way the government could have known you know terrorists just have to get lucky once all that sort of stuff but so like you said, the house is owned by a man named Ahmed Al-Hada, who is one of bin Laden's good friends. Uh, he also happened to be the father-in-law of Khalid al-Midar, who was one of the 9-11 hijackers ultimately. And yes, like you say, it was a it was a switchboard. So you can't just make phone calls to Af anywhere in Afghanistan when you feel like it, like uh, and especially when you're trying to run like a, a clandestine like terrorist organization. So they used it as a way people could call from, you know, one country, leave a message, and someone could call in from a different country and receive that message. And, you know, like you said, this house was was known about because they had tapped bin Laden's, you know, satellite phone and they're seeing like, you know, what numbers does he call? And then there's this house in Sana Yemen he calls a lot. So that's going to be important. And like, oh, it's a, owned by his friend. Uh so they actually, you know, the, um, Mike Scheuer went on. I, he said that on. I think he told it to Bamford first, right? That the 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 CIA had actually built a relay station, a satellite relay station. I want to say in Madagascar, mm -hmm. so they could hear both sides of these conversations. Because what was happening was the NSA was able to listen in on the house, and then the guys at CIA, you know, Scheuer went over to NSA saying, "Hey, I really need to know what's being said on those." phone calls to the to the Yemen house and they were only giving him half of the call they were giving him like one side of the call but not the other and he was like this just isn't going to do so the CIA he convinced the CIA you know whoever he had to convince that it was worth building a satellite relay station to listen to the house themselves so they didn't have to rely on whatever the NSA was giving them so the so Alex station then from that point on would have their own ears into that house into any of the calls going in and out there so what's the major point about this is that after, so well, I guess first starting, I, I mentioned that terrorist summit in Malaysia around the time of the millennium. Well, that's how the CIA knew that was happening, right? They listened to that. So that's how they knew these guys were going to be gathering in Malaysia. And that, and knowing that they'd be gathering there, they set up all the surveillance, you, you know, coordinating with other intelligence agencies around the world to follow these guys to Malaysia and to do their best to find out what was going on with them there. And so that house was pivotal to them even knowing that meeting was happening. Well, when Nawaf al-Hazmi comes to the United States with Khalid al-Midar and they set up shop in, they, they land in LA, but they end up setting up shop and getting an apartment down in San Diego. Nawaf al-Hazmi gets a phone number in his own name. And then Khalid al-Midar is calling his pregnant wife who lives at that house in Sana Yemen. And I, 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 my memory is foggy. I want to say they at least called that house from the United States eight times. So that's critical because you have the NSA and the CIA monitoring every call that goes into and out of this house. And now they see eight calls coming from San Diego. So not only should they have been listening to those calls, which of course they were, 
there should be a a big siren blaring like hold on a minute like usually the calls going into this house are coming from you know not domestically they're not coming from the u.s mm-hmm. they're coming from other parts of the world to see that they are now coming from the u.s means someone from the u.s is calling the al-qaeda switchboard that's basically bin laden's answering machine so right there you that should have been a hot fire emergency that should have involved immediately getting warrants, you know, like sending information to the FBI, getting warrants to go to that house, either to immediately begin surveillance on that house, like like manpower surveillance and, you know, and electronic surveillance of that house, the FBI doing it, and then arrests made to like wrap this up. I imagine what would have probably happened would have been, if it had been done correctly, would have, there would have been a lot of surveillance of that house so they could have the FBI could have found whoever else was attached to those people because you don't want to just necessarily arrest the first two guys right away because there might be more guys and you want to know who all the guys are. But that's probably what should have happened. But instead, that didn't happen. And Tom Drake goes into this uh, in his interview with us where he talks about the managerial chop chain. So if Richard Clark is right, if Richard Clark's hypothesis that there was a high level operation being from coming all the way from the director of the CIA saying, we're going to let these guys in country and we are going to try to flip them or, you know, get them reporting and we're going to keep the FBI out of it. Well, the NSA would have had to have been brought in on that, right? Because the CIA can be running all the op at once, but if the NSA starts seeing calls to Sana Yemen, you know, the, this Al Qaeda switchboard from San Diego, the NSA is immediately, if they're doing their job, going to go, oh, hey, FBI, we got a problem here. So they had to have been told, at least at a managerial level. Um, so probably going through Hayden and then down to managers like Maureen Bukowski. Uh, what was her last name? Maureen, uh, I almost said Bukowski. Uh, Beginsky. Oh, Beginsky. Beginsky. Yeah. Uh, and and they would have been told like, hey, your your desk, your, your Sana Yemen desk is going to get some pings. And they're going to want to tell the FBI, don't. So like – that means this this law breaking to do surveillance for the CIA to be doing surveillance domestically would have had to have also involved people at the NSA as well. And can I say that, um, you know, the reason I think a lot of things that get labeled conspiracy theory are actually dead wrong is because we have this habit. We have storytelling brains. Right. So this big thing happens, this tragic thing, 9-11, and bit by bit, pieces of the story start coming out. And if you if you just tell every bit of information that was known inside portions of the government in chronological order, it starts to seem like, oh, my God, there's no way everybody didn't know about this. And therefore, oh, my God, there had to be this massive conspiracy. And the 9-11 Commission learned about most of these things that we eventually learned about uh, behind behind closed doors and this and that. And they irritated a lot of 9-11 families by saying, OK, all these mistakes, these happened, but. Uh, there was a failure to connect the dots. There was no dot connecting between this one person working the Yemen hub and these other people who found out the you know people connected to it had come over and these other people that were doing this. And um, and I think what excited us about this story is that the more we looked in particular at this particular group of people connected to Alex Station at CIA and then eventually found a similar situation over at NSA, it really seemed like at least for a small group of people, those dots were connecting. And, you know, and 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 we felt we could kind of prove that at least circumstantially, if not in a few cases directly. And then the question becomes, well, then what was their intent? Then why did the plot succeed if they were connecting those dots and their job was to stop it? 
another troubling aspect you write in the book was in chapter three, something you touched on just a little bit in the beginning. I'd like to get your additional thoughts. Uh, you mentioned the August 7, 1998 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Kenya and how one operative managed to flee from the truck uh, that exploded, which was Mohammed Al-Ohali, had spoken on a phone outside the Ramada Hotel at a kiosk. And when the FBI learned of this, pulled the number and traced it back to the house in Yemen that he called. John Antisev, FBI agent in New York, interrogated Al-Ohali and gave up the number, which was then shared with the CIA bin Laden issue station. But according to Jack Cloonan, a fellow agent at the FBI in New York, he had no idea that the CIA and the NSA were already aware of their monitoring of this house back in 1996. So just get your thoughts on that. That was <laughs> that was actually a, kind of like a, a sad moment because we that was well, like Ray said, we had an interview with Cloonan in his living room at his house. Very nice man um, who clearly cared about his job and was trying to do his best um <laughs> and yeah i mean we we had only recently learned that too right because again of uh of Scheuer coming out and and saying what he'd said to bamford about you know building the relay station and and you know how they'd been listening to sana yemen since you know 96 or whatever uh but yeah, like the FBI like does does its job. They interview this guy, they get this phone number and they're like, "Wow, this is hot." And like, "You know what we should do because we're the FBI and we don't we don't do this international surveillance stuff, but these are important guys. We're not going to hold this to ourselves. We are going to tell the CIA so, you know, so they can monitor this. This is good. we think this is a big deal." And they never and the CIA never goes like, "Oh yeah, we knew that." You know, like we were sitting in Clunan's living room and we had just, you know, kind of become privy to that information ourselves. And we, and we tell him, we're like, Hey, did you know they were listening to that house actually since 96? Cause Clunan was really proud of it. He's like, and we're the ones who discovered the, 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 the Yemen switchboard. And I was like, nah, man, they, this day I knew about it years before they were listening to it. And, and he was just sort of like, wait, what they were like, we were the ones who like told him that. And he, and wow. it like, deflated, you know, like it was just like another, I think probably leading to like what Ray, the comment Ray had brought up earlier, like where he finally is like, I don't know how these people sleep at night. So, Well, and the reason I think it also, as he's working it out in his brain in front of us, what's disturbing him is, wait, if they're listening to that since 96, and we know that that hub was key to planning the embassy bombings, then how, how did the embassy bombings go ahead? Like he was kind of doing the same question we were asking about 9-11 <laughs> about the embassy bombings. And was like, what? That can't be true. Is that true? He asked us a million questions afterwards, and we laugh about it sometimes because it was the first time we considered ourselves these like outsiders who were sort of grasping at these little information straws, and they were the insiders who knew everything and lived it and knew all the characters. And he's thinking like, "Wait, did Bob in the next office know?" You know, like uh, you know, and trying to get information out of us, which I find often happens with these with these folks. We assume everyone on the inside knows everything and often their head is down and they're doing their jobs. And then years later they find out some pieces of information and they end up on these trails like us because they realize what the guy next door knew that I, I had lunch with that guy once a week. Like what? The, and that, that was really where Clark was coming from too, was like George Tennant was my friend. This is not easy for me to lay out to you, but this is the belief I've come to about my friend that I worked with on the regular on this issue. You, there was another part in the book, which I found very illuminating, actually, and it came in chapter six, and you wrote the following. 
breaking protocol, Bob delivered to Drake a report, both in hard copy and electronic form. The report completed at the beginning of the year was nothing less than devastating to his agency. Drake immediately viewed it as a smoking gun. He detailed how the NSA had collected immense material from an NSA-monitored Al-Qaeda telephone hub in Yemen, the one worked by departed analyst Becky. Further, the report showed that the NSA had accurately mapped in rich and extensive detail, Bin Laden's network, cells, and associated movements. It laid out the history, it lays out the network, and it lays out the threat. It goes back and analyzes the coal bombing, the embassy bombing, the Cobar Towers bombing. It even warned the use of planes. Drake then goes to Maureen Baginski, NSA Signals Directorate, and later says, Tom, I wish you had not shown me this. I'd like to get your thoughts. This is, of course, eliminating the notion of plausible deniability, I would assume. Would you agree? I don't know. Because um, you got to, okay, so how many reports are coming in? Just to get benefit of the doubt on that particular issue, right? Like, how many reports are coming in? How many uh, issues are they working on? A report comes in that uh, that connects, like, essentially, in retrospect, what we know to be kind of all the, like, the 9-11 plotters, right? And puts it on a chart. That looks bad after the fact. But if you either, if you either are hearing that these guys are being monitored and we're going to know if anything comes in the future, or if you don't even know something's coming and they're just one of a number of, like, plotting groups uh, that you're keeping an eye on and don't know exactly what's coming, then... Yes, there definitely were actionable things that should have happened afterwards. And the fact that it was kept from being shared could have legitimately been not legitimately, but could have been classic bureaucratic BS where like we're going to use this to empower our organization in the eyes of leadership and not share everything we have immediately with everybody else so that FBI and CIA get to take their bows. I mean, I think actually in that case, in my mind, but Duffy, I'd be curious to know your thought there actually are outs for the leadership of the NSA. Not great outs, not outs that make them look very good, but possibly not sinister, you know, ends to that. I mean, from from my limited knowledge there, uh, insofar as like everything that happens at the, N the NSA, um, I think it would just go back, like, the, you're asking like after the fact when she said, I wish you wouldn't have shown me that. Right, right. That's what that was her attempt at plausible deniability. Right. Yeah. Maybe in a sense, because you don't know, like, I'm sure, I can't say I'm sure she particularly was for certain part of the, the chop chain and the decision to not share information ahead of time. I can't say, I can't definitively say that about Maureen Beginsky, but. Someone was some manager who, who oversaw that part of the NSA was in charge of making sure that information didn't go over prior to 9-11. I can imagine that after the fact, everyone's probably very scared, like everyone in government, everyone in these positions is going like, oh, holy shit, there's going to be like there's going to be hell to pay. Heads are going to roll. I think they all really feared accountability like this is the biggest attack on American soil, like in hundreds of years, like this is nuts. Like we're the ones, you know, we're the tip of the spear. Like some of us here are going down and maybe criminally. Right. So I'm sure there was a lot of fear. And, and then yes, to have this report put together by one of your analysts who's like, Oh, by the way, we had everything. 
yeah, I can imagine her attitude is like, like, I need to be able to say if I am brought before an inquiry and if I'm under oath, I need to be able to say, I didn't know any of this, you know, now she could say, I didn't know that, but I didn't learn it till three days after now, you know, but that's still going to look really bad because it's going to open up further questions like, well, wait a minute, why do your analysts have this, all this information and you don't know it, you know, like it's, it's still going to look bad. I think at that point, there is probably a desire for, um, some, uh, some plausible deniability like i never so i i do think that's probably why that comment came out of her mouth it doesn't necessarily mean she did have a lot of foreknowledge or whatever i I really don't know what was specifically in her head but i think the greater point the the point that matters the most is that the agency itself was functional right the agency itself was doing the thing it was supposed to do it was collecting enormous amounts of data right and it was focused on the right targets and and you know it it did have people dedicated to bin laden and to his network it did have people looking at the this the right sources of information like the the house in in yemen so that's the greater point is that like yes like we didn't need anything new we didn't need anything different like we just like like ray said like dots were being connected. And like Kevin Fenton has said, like they were being intentionally disconnected by people. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to trail off too much, but well, yeah, that's a greater point. I'll, tra- that- I'll trail in if I could with just a quick thing there. I mean, I think Duffy and I are are, are empathetic as I think most uh, journalists and storytellers should be because you want to put yourself in other people's shoes. So the empathetic side of me imagines my house burning down and then Duffy bringing me Uh, a photo he took in my garage of me storing a whole bunch of gasoline tanks and me going, I wish you hadn't shown me that, you know? And uh, right. So there's, there's a natural inclination to try to cover your ass when, when you think like the hordes are coming for you. But that said, I think it points to how much the American character uh, of the people working in our government changed over decades, because the example Duff gave earlier with Rich Bleed, I mean, the honorable thing to do in the past would have been to go, look, this really wasn't my fault. I really didn't know what was coming, but I was in charge. It was my responsibility to stop this. Thousands are dead. I'm 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 leaving. I'm falling on my sword. And that probably should have happened across the board. And in our book, what we do is once we realize because that comes out in 2018, I'm asking myself, what's the point of telling this story? You know, what what are we getting at? Who, who, What is it going to do? And over the course of the second half of the story, we were able to see what all of these people who had failed at their jobs, whether, you know, whether it was sort of a deliberate failure or whether it truly was incompetence, the fact that 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 they had stayed on to fight the war on terror and be behind the scenes for, you know, at this point, 22 years after those massive failures, I believe 100% that uh, that the failure to hold Bush and Cheney to account in 04 with their re-election and the failure to hold these insiders in government to account and let them keep working and keep doing more uh, questionable things over their careers has in, in some ways led to the flaming shit show that the, that the country, you know, is sort of uh, where we stand today. Um, yeah. So I, I, there was that- an impact. Yeah. And that's a very important point. And it's something I think about a lot these days, which is the lack of integrity in in people and institutions. 
Uh, Ray and I do work now on a much more local level out of St. Louis regarding like police and like failure to investigate murders uh, of specific people in like the black community and uh, up and down in, and maybe I'm naive because I was born in 1981 and I have a rosy view of the past from before I was born. But like my perception is that there was a time of, of greater integrity of more like the buck stops here. And I think that's what we've really lost. And after 9-11, instead of saying like, wow, you guys, all you people who your whole job was just this and you had millions and millions of dollars at your disposal and you like and you had all this technology, you had everything, you still screwed the pooch. <laughs> like, you know, like you would think that, that that would be the moment where you go, I'm sorry, like your shit canned, your shit canned, your shit canned. We're investigating you, you know, <laughs> and instead of that, what happened was they were able to pitch themselves as more necessary than ever, right? Once all the wagons kind of circled and they go, look, we're not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about your shit. You're not going to talk about my shit. You're, I'm not going to call you out. You're not going to call me out. Then, then there's no problem. None, if none of us are, if it was none of our fault, then it's none of our fault. And we can tell the American people, we can tell the president, we can tell everybody, the media, that we are more necessary than ever because now we got this new enemy. This is the enemy we've been studying for years and you didn't listen to us. And now look what they've done. You need us bad, right? And that's what happened. They sold themselves as more important and more necessary than ever and just got better jobs, you know, and got more money thrown at them, more power. And like that to me, like it, it's a, such a crisis of integrity and i know people like human beings are just human beings and sometimes we think like oh people who are at the top of the cia or you know work in the presidential administration they, they must be made of some extra special stuff and you'd hope they were but really they get scared they go oh crap i'm about to get fired i'm about to get investigated mm -hmm. i'm gonna get in some real trouble they get scared like anybody else and they look around and they go if i go down you're going down and if you go down i'm going down so like let's all just huddle together and that is such a crisis of integrity. And I really think that has been able to snowball in our country and lead to like the clusterfuck, the, the flaming dumpster fire that Ray mentioned earlier. It's like what really needs to happen when people, you know, screw up, whether on purpose or accidentally, they need to be removed and the next person has to come in to do a better job. And just to expand on this, because, you you know, I thought this was a very important part of the book, because uh, you in chapter eight, you write about how Tom Drake and his analyst, Fred, used the NSA's thin thread program to look into its own intelligence mainframe computer facility, information from the NSA's mainframes and whatever operational intelligence, which included their signals intelligence operation at the Yemen hub and bin Laden satellite phones throughout the years. And the thin, the thin thread bot was finding everything in one place, phone numbers, emails, location info, routing info. Um, one of the major finds was information concerning the travel plans of the eventual hijackers and was able to identify the suspect that the 9-11 hijackers even booked airline tickets all flying on the same day. And the question I have is this, Thin Thread was terminated by the NSA one month before the 9-11 attacks. Who terminated that program? And if Thin Thread had not been terminated, would that information have been known to the NSA and acted upon? Man, that is an excellent question, and I'm not sure I can give a confident answer. 
I'll take a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I, I would imagine they could still cover by saying that uh, the data wasn't being mined until after the fact, which is kind of dumb, right? Like if you're the NSA and you've got a program to mine data, you you want to get alerted to. And if your little department is bin Laden or Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda plots in the U.S., like you're probably getting uh, auto updates on certain, you know, certain areas through a thin thread like program. But they could probably always claim after the fact had had it even continued on that, like they didn't monitor it in real time, which they claimed after the fact about a number of things that were, that were later located in their databases. So but yeah, I mean, in theory, uh, if they've got these these guys all plugged into their system and their you know algorithm is running and all of a sudden all these names uh have tickets flying in the same day you think you'd you'd sit up and you'd pay attention to where they're going and why they're why all these folks that you're monitoring are all traveling on that same date uh that would seem like it would have been a probably pretty good vehicle to try to stop this plot in the late term was that the question yes John, any thoughts on that? The CIA alerted the FBI to the presence of the 9-11 hijackers uh, at the end of August, right? Um, so a few weeks out from the attacks. and But they didn't alert. Who they alerted at the FBI becomes a big subject of controversy because they didn't alert people who they had criminal powers to be going after them and didn't give them the the necessary info as, as to how to find them. Uh, it would seem to me that had they alerted had they alerted the right people and had those people been able to go to counterparties at the NSA and say like, look, like we're looking for certain people and we think you're going to have information on them, then theoretically, yes, they could have pulled it up and located them because that was the big deal was locating them. Right. Mm. Um, and that what should have been possible then um, it's, I, I believe, you know, it's, it's said like, and you know, we, we were told that, you know, getting rid of thin thread was mainly about money and mainly about sort of the glory of larger projects, the glory of, of, of big money coming into the agency. Um, I think it was alluded that decisions like that, you said who who killed it, that decisions like that might've gone up to Hayden, I, but I can't confidently say that. Um, but that ultimately the reasoning behind it is like, oh, well, why, why have a couple of nerds who work in house do, you know, do a project that we can do, you know, cheaply when instead we could, get a bunch of contractors and get a huge federal, you know, like earmark and we'll get all this money coming in because that's, I guess, how a lot of bureaucrats think. Like there's a, a prestige to bringing in big government money like that. And that's what the, the major reason given for why the project itself was canceled in favor of a, a different computer, an analogous computer system. Mm -hmm. One might almost imagine an alternate reality where, uh, September 11, 2001 plays out like any other day. And that night on the evening news, we see a report of uh, different, you know, FBI teams all have descended on these like three airports and arrested, a, you know, a group of Muslim men. Um, they're saying, you know, they're, they're all tied to an intended plot to use planes as weapons. You know, uh, I don't know. Um, 
And, you know, the funny thing is that does happen, right? So there are arrests. And the case that uh, the government made on its behalf, which really irritated 9-11 widow Mindy Kleinberg, was this idea that, you know, the government has to be lucky 100 or has to be lucky 100 percent of the time in stopping these and the terrorists only have to get lucky once. And that was a line I think she paraphrased from Tom Wilshire when he testified before Congress. And she she made the case that she laid out, uh, you know, all the times that these dots should have or seemingly did connect and that that argument really didn't hold water. So. Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing I will. It's hard to say the biggest. One of the largest WTFs is that on September 4th, all these principals get together for a, a meeting, a counter-terror meeting, a White House level, a cabinet level meeting about mm -hmm. counter-terror. And Richard Clark is there and all these heads of departments are there and George Tenet is there. And they're going over various threats, thing, you know, action items, things like that. And this is exactly one week before 9-11. And George Tenet does not bring up the presence of al-Qaeda hijackers in the United States that his agency supposedly discovered from this record search they did. Um, and that would have been a point. And, and Clark mentions that in our interview. He's like, if he would have told me then, he's like, we would have found those guys that day. You know, like if he would have told me, like sitting in that room, like, hey, by the way, here's one of our other updates. Some of our guys at Alex Station went through their old cable traffic, discovered that there had been this uh, this uh, multiple entry visa. We looked it up and we said, hey, where are these guys? And, oh, it turns out they flew to the United States and they're here. If he would have said that right then and there, with like the head of the FBI sitting there and Richard Clark sitting mm -hmm. there, like the plot would have been foiled. It, you know, it would have stopped. And that's one of those like, how the hell does Richard Tenet, or, um, or sorry, George Tenet sleep at night? knowing that one week out, he, he still, still didn't say anything. And when we ask, you know, like, well, why, why do you think he didn't? It's mainly because like Clark's theory was mainly that like, it's just a big cover your ass. Cause he's like, if I, if, if Tenet says it in that meeting, if he says like, oh, these guys are here, like, it's going to be a record scratch moment where Clark and, and probably a lot of other people are going to turn their head and go, wait a minute, how do you know this? And he's going to have to explain how he knows it. And they're going to go, well, how long have you known it? And like, wait a minute. Let... And they're going to start wanting a lot of details on like the backstory to these guys getting here. And I guess his thinking is that there was maybe a hope in Tenet's head that these guys are going to get caught and it'll all get wrapped up because we've already alerted, you know, the lower levels of the FBI to look for them. So I just won't say anything because they're going to get caught and then it'll all wash away and no one I'll, I'll never be asked to explain like what was going on. And, um, but unfortunately that's not what happens. Like the guys don't get caught. The plan succeeds, a bunch of people die. Um, but that's, you know, and I, I think that's like the biggest sort of WTF is like, because in that moment, like a full court press search for those guys could have happened. And that could have included going to the NSA and looking at what the NSA had and using their tools to, you know, to locate where these guys all were within the United States and, and, and wrap it up. But that might've also opened up a lot of unpleasant questions for the NSA, you know, at the moment when like they wrap that plot up, they go, guys, you had all this for like a year and a half. When were you going to say anything? You know? And one of the stories we learned while writing the book, that's just kind of an extra piece of icing on this uh, that's interesting is that, of course, famously, 
Colin Powell, supposedly as, as uh, Secretary of State, opposed the invasion of Iraq, but it was clear we were going in. And so early 2003, he sends his deputy, Colonel Larry Wil Wilkinson, over to CIA. And Wilkinson's claims he's spending like the nights there sleeping on a couch and they're going over uh, intelligence around, you know, this this planned invasion of Iraq. And hey, so hey, he's. Hey, yeah, one thing. Uh, I think it was technically after the invasion, just keeping it clear. Oh, was I think it? I think he's saying he was watching satellite feed of of this airstrikes on and missile strikes on Iraq when it happens. But anyway, continue. copy that. Okay, so it's well, so it's first half of 2003. He's spending a lot of time in intense situations with uh, some of um, Tenet's top deputies, and he claims he calls them yak yak sessions. Uh, I guess at that level, maybe they're less careful with uh, if they're sharing as someone else at a high level a white house level like things but they're they start telling stories about yeah i mean we were monitoring these guys and it blew up in our faces and it's like it's the dark secret that could undo cia we can't you know a tenant scared to death of it we can't let it out. i mean i'm paraphrasing but it's like it's to that effect well yeah he said that he'd so he's kind of relaying something secondhand he these these guys who were upper level CIA who were like, you know, assistants to tenant and stuff were saying that they had heard themselves back at CIA that that's what happened. So within CIA, this was like, this was in the rumor mill, like, you know, again, everyone's stovepiped, everyone's compartmentalized, just because you work at the CIA doesn't mean you know, it's the guy in the next room is working on or doing, but they, you know, they talk and they go with something as big as 9-11 happens, like, people are gonna Oh, you, you think this, you think that. And yeah, they were saying they heard that, like, we were monitoring those guys and it blew up in our faces. And yeah. And then so that's that was that was the rumor mill even within the CIA. Right. Have you been I know it's years later. One of the last things I want to ask you is that um, uh, last last year, there was a release of documents called Operation Encore. Um, this is the FBI follow up to a pent bomb investigation. Have you been keeping up with that, both of you? A little bit. I, I read everything that came out, and we actually contacted the FBI agents who did the who did Operation Encore. Mm -hmm. We considered doing a further project following that up, but it never really coalesced. Um, like Ray said, we also don't want to have to be 9-11 guys the rest of our lives. But, right. um, so, but when that came out, it was something that did draw our attention, and we were like, maybe there's maybe there's meat on the bone here that really needs to be, you know written about but the new york times did a really good job writing about it and i think we were like after contacting those agents it was like they they're 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 cagey but in an understandable way in a sense where they didn't want to talk over the phone about anything right and and we had discussed possibly meeting them in person but one was san diego one was new york city we we weren't in either of those locations at the time then covid ha was happening and travel was getting screwy and like and so we had brief email exchanges saying we were interested. They would only really talk about it in person. And then it just kind of came down to like, well, I think most of the things that they were willing to say, they had said to the New York times. And I don't know if we would have gotten them to say much else. Maybe we would have. Right. Um, you know, this conversation could have went on another two hours. I know for sure. Um, uh, but I know you got daily lives. So, what I want to ask uh, both of you, um, what projects are you working on currently? Uh, talk about them here. And where can people contact you? I'll have everything in the description anyway. You can go well, we got our second our second season on after the uprising and we're proceeding and we uh, we don't want to 
tip off the folks who might uh, want to obstruct that investigation. So we won't get too into it, but it, it sure. for those who um, haven't listened to After the Uprising season one, if you like our work, it turns it at the location and time place of, of the birth of what are arguably many would say birth Black Lives Matter, the Ferguson movement, 2014 out of St. Louis and that first season. I think we're both very proud of it. As Duffy mentioned, it, it was an NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Podcast. And uh, so so if you're listening right now and you like our work, go, you know, go search in your podcast app for After the Uprising, follow, start listening and, and look forward to season two coming next year. Um, and then, of course, for anybody who's into this subject matter, they're going to love uh, the new podcast. We're doing a double asterisk uh, about America through the lens of the holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, <laughs> with all 10 episodes dropping November 20th from iHeart. Uh, in all seriousness, it's kind of a thinky, fun, poppy look at all these areas of American life. Some of them a little bit like a, it's got a kind of a George Bailey punk rock kind of a vibe, even though it's this movie that's considered quite hokey. And uh, that show is going to be called George Bailey Was Never Born. And you can listen to all 10 episodes November 20th, wherever you get your podcast. It's, it was an idea that Ray had for a while. And I always, I always thought it was brilliant. And, uh, and um, it was, I was happy to have him see that he came up with an idea that was not like really depressing. <laughs> it was like, wow, this is like, <laughs> it's like a little bit more, a little bit more fun. Um but yes, listen to the, after the uprising, the death of Dion Jones, Donya Dion Jones. You can find it on any podcatcher. Uh, it's sort of a true crime story. We're basically looking into what uh, the death of a, uh, the hanging death of a young black man. But it's it's our journalistic style where we we call every single person. We just get in there and like and uh, we we just needle until we get as many answers as we can get until we're you know. It, it, we we go it, we we go until the brick wall falls on us. Um, we're doing a second season of that. Uh, we are working on a similar project that will, is aimed to be a film uh, about the death of a native girl out in Montana uh, and a lot of government screwiness there. Basically, we uh, I think we got a little sick of like doing things at the national and federal level and decided to like use that same skill and like find the exact same little like corruption and and the lies and the ass covering at different local levels, uh, whether, you know, city or state, stuff like that. So we have an, another project that will be coming out down the line. Um, but we could also, if anyone's interested in sort of the, the concept of lab leak uh, for COVID, we did make a six part series called Origins Birth of a Pandemic, which you can also find on, you know, Apple or uh, Spotify, which is basically, it's kind of, it's very similar in a sense to like, who is Rich Blee in that it's a it's sort of a history of like the beginning of the pandemic. And so it, part of it's just like tracking, tracking the history of it, but also speaking with researchers and stuff who were diving in from the beginning to find out like where the pandemic virus came from. And it's really fascinating because it was such a taboo topic for the longest time, despite the fact that it just really shouldn't have been. It's like just a, Hey, what, what happened here? You know, like everyone should want to know. And now that it's coming out that more and more uh, U.S. federal government agencies are going, yeah, it was probably lovely. <laughs> um, uh, it's I, I feel like it's we with this series, we were sort of ahead of the curve and, you know, in, in a way that people people were scared to look at it and 
and and, and this and, is one where I'll uh, I'll admit that uh, I, I kind of argued with Duffy. I was like, do we really have to go into the the origins of COVID? Like, do we have to do that? Especially at the time when uh, we're releasing this sort of Black Lives Matter true crime podcast, and the audiences are probably going to be a little confused by these two very <laughs> different pieces of media. And uh, but I was like, look, I know I know you're a good journalist, so I know everything in this will be true. I just wish we weren't pulling this particular thread. And I have to admit, uh, obviously, things the tide has turned on that issue in, in, uh, since then. So I got to credit Duff for that. Um, we just care about the. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, we just care about the truth and good reporting. You know, it's, it's frustrating. You know, when I mean, we don't work for legacy media agencies, so we can report on anything we want. And unfortunately, we live again. It's like what I said before. There's just a crisis of integrity. Any like, it stinks that certain issues shake out and be like, oh, lefty people are really behind this idea, and righty people aren't, or vice versa. And it's like, mm -hmm. listen. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is just understanding the truth and like, it, it, you know, to the best of our ability. And then you can take that wherever you want after the fact, but don't hinder trying to figure out what the truth is, but, you know, don't decide what it is because of how you feel politically, you know, bef you know, at the beginning, because it ends up making like right now, people who are like really on, you know, on the left have ended up making people on the right look really good because they were the only ones willing to really probe the lap leak thing. And I'm sure you could find uh, you know, opposite examples. Um, but anyway, yeah, we just care about like good reporting and interesting reporting and, you know, so. Well, and by the way, those who are of like uh, a certain tribe who who think like, ah, we really, really like the work these guys did on CIA, NSA, wish they do more stuff like that, but I'm not really interested in the Black Lives Matter issue. Uh, I, I would just say, if you listen to After the Uprising, you're going to see a lot of echoes of like, what we did in, in, in uncovering Alfreda Bukowski, there was a, a detective named Timothy Anderer that we really found a number of astonishing things about who had been <laughs> investigating Donye's murder. And just like I got, you know, strong armed by CIA with Preston Golson, had a similar incident that's in one of the episodes of the first season where I'm basically getting told off by the information officer at County PD and trying to reason with him that he should let Andrew talk with us because he'll be made a more three-dimensional person if he doesn't appear to be sort of hiding. And uh, so anyway, I, I think people will enjoy that if they get, uh, if they like our previous work. Ray Nowoshelsky and John Duffy, the watchdogs didn't bark, the CIA, NSA, and the crimes of the war on terror. Thank you both for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been a joy. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.